Bible, open it up there, John chapter 12, and uh, we're going to be, I've kind of plotted it out now, re-set re, uh, my notes and my, my plans, my plan, which the Lord loves to change and has every right to, but uh, we should be in the Gospel of John through about mid-August. That's my, what I'm thinking right now at this point, so it'll take us through the summer. Really, I'm just delaying getting out of John for the rapture of the church. That's what that's really about. So, Lord, you have till mid-August. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like, I'm going to tell him. John chapter 12, let's turn there and, and continue on in our study. And, and I told you uh, a couple of weeks ago that I was going to slow up a bit. I got home that Wednesday night, and Cheryl said, What's the difference between slowing up and slowing down? And I said attitude. You know, it's attitude. We're going to just slow our pace, as it were. Tonight she's going to ask me, what's the difference between slowing our pace, slowing up, and slowing down? But we're going to move a little more carefully and, and not cautiously, but intentionally. I just, there's so much. We're coming into a section of Scripture in the Bible that is among the most profound teachings of Jesus contained here that John, by the Spirit, recalled and wrote down for us are not to be missed. And even the narrative between here and the end of the book, what takes place, is so significant to our faith and to our lives, to the encouragement of our daily walk. And so I think it will really be worth it to take a little more time. We're going to get about halfway through, I think, John chapter 12, but let's back it up and get a running start with John chapter 11, verse 55. John eleven fifty five. 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That alone is just an amazing statement. He came to visit Lazarus, you know, the guy he raised from the dead. I mean, what? So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, which makes sense, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. So John gives us a little insight that the intentions were already well underway. He said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he, used, as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. John is pulling no punches here. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for you do not always have the poor with you, but you for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. A large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised 
from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus, Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This touching moment, this touching story is as sweet as perfume and as sour as perdition. The juxtaposition, the, the tenderness of the touch of Mary and the, and the tight-fisted treachery of Judas back-to-back back and set against each other in the same story, the contrast between intimacy and insurrection is stunning here. And it's written as it took place. It's glaring. And we're gonna actually come back to this story on Sunday because there's so much more here that I wanna spend some time and think through together. But for tonight, what this does is give us context for where we're going and for the rest of the chapter and what we're about to walk into. As Jesus says, you do not always have me. You don't always have me. And so we've come now to the last week of his life. This is probably Saturday afternoon or evening. We don't know what time the supper was, the meal. It could have been either one. But a last gathering on Shabbat, right before the start of the final week, the last week of Jesus' life, that is before his death, burial, and resurrection. And I wonder, and let this question kind of sit behind where we go tonight, I wonder how you would handle that or how I would handle that. If we knew we were six days from crucifixion, six days from our execution, if, if I knew that in six days I would not only be hung up on a cross, but I would be bearing the full weight of the wrath of God on my shoulders for the sin of the entire world, how would I handle that? What would my last week look like by comparison? You know, it's really easy for us, and we do it a lot, to get mad at immorality. Can anyone relate to that? Anyone find yourself getting a little angry at the pro-choice reaction to the potential that Roe v. Wade could be overturned? Hearing how people are vitriolic and hateful and angry in my body and I have a right. What's really funny to me is that there are people saying, it's my body, my right. And these are the same people who are saying, every one of y'all has to get vaccinated. Well, that was a little political, wasn't it? <laughs> but it's real easy for me to sit here in judgment and go, these people are sick. These people are so wrong. These people are so sinful. I can be disgusted by sinful opinions and politics and behaviors in other people. I can be disgusted in my own as well, but here's the reality. First John chapter two, verse two, he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let's use that word in his prayer, the propitiation. That's the utter cleansing. That's the wiping away, the wiping out, the, the, the removal in total of, of our sin. He himself is that propitiation. He did it, and not just for my sins, but also for the whole world. But Lord, I've looked at the whole world, and they're messed up out there. And it's real easy to do that, but Jesus offered universal invitation. 
Now remember, we've said this before. This is not universal salvation that he offered himself for the sins of the whole world. No, the, the offering is for the whole world. Question is whether or not the world will receive that invitation. It's universal invitation, not universal salvation. So it's not that everyone's gonna be saved, but everyone could be if they would accept it. And that is last to the, down to the last Mary and Judas on the planet. If they would accept his invitation to salvation, they would be saved. Even the Judases, Rick? Yeah, even the betrayers, even the rebellious, even those who are pilfering, even those who had intentions to turn against, if they accept the offer of eternal salvation, the universal invitation, they would be saved. John chapter three, verse 36, he who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. And we talked about the wrath of God on Good Friday, that that is what Jesus paid for, that that is what Jesus satisfied. It wasn't just my sin, it was the wrath of God poured out against my sin that Jesus took upon himself. And in this moment, even Judas whose heart is dark, but not completely overtaken by the devil. That would not happen until the Last Supper. Even Judas could have yet chosen Jesus and had life. So that's where we are on this, on this final, this is like the Last Supper before the Last Supper. You know, this is the, the social gathering. This is more laid back. This is, you know, it's intentional in terms of relationship, but it's not intentional in terms of the blood of the covenant and the, and the new covenant that Jesus sets in place at the last Passover. But at this supper, this gathering of friends, we start into the last week. And it does set the pace for us. I, I wanna encourage you to watch Jesus closely through the next few chapters. Take note of his words, what he says, and remember, keep it in the context of what's happening, of what week this is in his life and his ministry. And take note of his intentions. What is Jesus' focus? What's he talking about? Because I would think that you'd have a heightened sense of focus in a final week of life, that what you shared and said and spoke and did would be all the more significant at this time because you know you're at the end. Watch the remarkable poise and the obvious authority that Jesus bears through this final week of his passion. And again, the large crowd of the Jews was there. They learned he was there. And I find this interesting in verse nine, the Jews start showing up, but not just for Jesus, but because, but because they wanna see the dead man walking. They wanna see Lazarus. They've heard, is this true? Word had already been out that this guy Lazarus was dead. That, everyone knew that. But four days later, he's alive, and they wanna see for themselves. They're showing up to see this once buried life now revived. And they start walking in and seeing Lazarus. And my friends, that spoke volumes. Note again that verse 11 says, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus on account of Lazarus. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So was Lazarus now on the preaching circuit? Is he now on Team Jesus as a full-time evangelist? What's Lazarus doing? I'm gonna give you three things to note in the 20 or 26 or so verses we're gonna do. Three things to note, and here's the first. This is the gospel witness. 
the gospel witness. Whether Lazarus was preachy or vociferous or not, Lazarus alive was the testimony. Now mark that. Lazarus alive was the testimony, was the witness. All they had to do was see him eating and breathing and walking and talking, and there's the gospel. Death to life. Here is the witness. Here is the testimony. Simply that he was now a living man who once was dead. That's the gospel witness. Where I once was dead, but now I'm alive in Christ Jesus. And that's Lazarus. I wonder, you know, well, have you heard the quote? I'm sure you have. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I've heard that a lot, especially from people who espouse what we call or what they call the social gospel. And I'm not really a social gospel guy. I'll explain that. Don't don't get me wrong here. I believe in serving and I believe in caring and I believe in compassion and I believe in in being active in our faith. But, But the social gospel person will say, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And that phrase is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who, by the way, wasn't Assisi. He was a wasn't a sissy. Anyway, the social gospel people, here's the thing. We ran into this several years ago. There were some people, uh, um, some believers who were doing kind of a social work in Oak Harbor. And they asked if we wanted to be involved. And we said, sure, what are you doing? And they started to explain everything. And they said, oh, oh, but, but, but we don't talk about Jesus. And I, I, well, Why? Well, this is the social gospel. We're, we're living it out, but we're not, we're not being preachy with anyone. And, and, and we said, well, no thanks. Because if you can't talk about Jesus, it's not the gospel. It's only the gospel if it's about Jesus. Now, if you're serving because of Jesus and sharing Jesus in your serving, absolutely. That's wonderful. Go, I'm in. But if you're serving and you're hiding Jesus, refusing to talk about Jesus for fear of offense, I'm sorry, that's, that is not the gospel. And sometimes the social gospel camp will fall into that. The reality is the gospel is both acted upon and it is spoken. It's not either or less, it's both and. That we speak the gospel and we act upon the gospel. And this is what I believe Lazarus was doing because people are going away believing in Jesus. Not just because he was sitting there having a hot dog, but because he was actually, well, he probably wouldn't have had a hot dog. That wouldn't have been kosher, unless it was one of those beef, you know, kosher dogs. That'd be okay. But he's sitting, it's not just sitting there. He's saying something. There's there's reality here that is being spoken. I'm, I'm convinced because the truth is if I'm alive in Christ, I will preach the gospel at all times in word and in deed. It's gonna be both. It's gonna come out of my mouth and it's gonna come out in my actions like Peter and John in Acts chapter four, verse 20, in front of the Sanhedrin saying, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. You ever had something like that, some news in your life that you just couldn't shut up about? Even when people were saying, man, you keep telling that story over and over and over. It's like, I can't help it, it's so cool. And that's the gospel, that it is a gospel of word and of deed. And I guarantee Lazarus wasn't sitting there like a bump on a log. His life was his testimony and bore out his testimony. As Paul said in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, Now get this, let it dwell within you. So if you stopped right there, you might say, okay, go to church, soak it up. 
That's all you got to do. But he continues and says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, which you cannot do silently, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is both. This is a life that is alive. Words and deeds that flow out of a life, my life, once dead, now alive, made alive by Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so our lives, like Lazarus, and he's a great example of this, we are alive in Christ. And that aliveness in Christ fires up our spoken testimony, our desire to serve, the way we live, the decisions we make. That's the gospel witness a changed life which comes out of my mouth and out of my behaviors as well. That, that's what Pastor Wayne was talking about on, on Sunday. You know that, right? I kind of think, think he slipped it in uh, a little peacefully there. You know how Wayne teaches and talks. He's very, he's very chill and he'll speak like this and you, he's very lulling in, in, his, in his mannerisms and the way he teaches very soft like this, and you'd almost go to sleep except he says if you don't accept the message of Jesus, you will go to hell, and then he continues on. You go, boom! He has this way of punching you in the gut right when you think he's just Mr. Peace. Well, his peace is, is from Jesus, but, but on Sunday, he's talking about being alive in Christ. I wanted him to yell. I'm like, Wayne, shout this. We're alive in Jesus do you realize we're alive? <laughs> I love Wayne, and I love how he teaches. But you know what? The verse that he was teaching out of nails it for this reason. Ephesians 5.14, it says, Awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is our lives. This is the gospel witness. This is why people were going away believing in Jesus, because of the gospel witness, and it was one man named Lazarus. So Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11, to this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is active, living faith. I once was dead, but I'm alive in Christ. The gospel witness. We live what we speak and we speak because we live in Jesus. Now watch the second thing, the gentle king. The gentle king, the gospel witness and now the gentle King, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And I pronounce Hosanna that way because that's the Hebrew pronunciation. It's Hosea-na. It's actually two words put together and it comes right out of the psalm that they were singing. 
They're singing from Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But verse 25 says this, O Lord, Hosea na. O Lord, do save, we beseech you, which is Hosanna in the Hebrew. Do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And what's going on here as Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem is pure messianic glory. The people are excited. The people are amped up. Tis the season because it's Passover. And Passover is one of at least three times in the year, but probably the primary time when Jewish people came to Jerusalem with great nationalism for the country, for the people, gathered there remembering their deliverance from Egypt and the nationalistic fervor every year would grow. We're told by Josephus that there were as many as two million to two and a half million Jews gathering in Jerusalem for this feast. Unbelievable. We know the number of sacrifices was in the 250,000 range And if you take the number of sacrifices and and add up the number of people that each sacrifice tended to represent, you you come up to this two to two and a half million people showing up there and they're excited and, and, and there's talk. Jesus Christ is the talk of the town. Messiah, is he the Messiah? Is he gonna be here? If he is the Messiah, is he gonna save us now? Oh, Hosanna, they see him walking into Jerusalem. Oh, Hosanna, save us. And they're singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. King of Israel is is a Messiah phrase. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes is Messiah. That's what it was fully understood as by the time of the first century. As a matter of fact, Psalm 118 had really developed the overtones of overthrow. The king's gonna come and it's gonna be awesome. And he's gonna lead us into victorious war over Rome. He's gonna drive out the oppressor. He's gonna restore the glories. They're reading the Old Testament prophecies and saying the great and glorious king is gonna come and save us and restore the kingdom. Could it be Jesus? Might it be this guy? Pure messianic fervor in this very political season for the Jewish people. And as Jesus was the talk of the town, the flames of messianic fervor were spreading just like wildfire. But here's the question, and I've never really thought about it like this before this study. Was Jesus fanning the flames of this messianic fervor? Was he intentionally whipping up the crowd, stirring them up as it were, Because if he was, you might question the integrity of his motives. Now, stay with me on this. Let me push this button a little bit. Verse 14 says that Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt, which is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. 
what, what didn't they understand? What was it that his own disciples did not understand until later? Because John is very clear about this. They didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't get what's going on. Look, the crowds got it. The crowds knew this was messianic. Of course his disciples would have known that. So that can't be what John is talking about. This so-called triumphus, we call it the triumphal entry, recorded in all four gospels. And we have been over this triumphal entry multiple times over the years. Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. And some look at it and say, yeah, Jesus was intentionally igniting controversy. Some go so far as to say he rode into Jerusalem on that day to really press the Jewish leaders and force their hand, resulting in his own crucifixion. That's crazy. And what's weird about it, and maybe this is a subtle point, but that would be intentionally misleading, wouldn't it? If, if Jesus knew they're already hyped, and he starts to pour gasoline on those flames. You know, here I am, here's Messiah, here we go, knowing that he was not going to restore the kingdom to Israel at that time. Wouldn't that be misleading? So what's going on here? Because I, Jesus is not misleading. Little hint, and I don't think I'm talking about this later on, but little hint in your Bible study, if you're ever confused by the scriptures, go back to the character of God and start there. Start with his goodness, start with his grace, look at his nature, and then go back to the difficult passage and say, okay, I know God is compassionate and gracious. I know God is perfectly righteous. Therefore, I know he can't be doing something here manipulative or deceptive. So he can't be, what is going on here? Jesus came the first time to be cut off, not to conquer. He will come the second time to conquer. But the first time, that's not why he came. That's why they were thinking he came. That's what they were thinking about him, that here comes our conquering king who can even raise the dead. And man, I'll tell you what, if he can raise the dead, we can go to war with Rome and he'll just keep raising us all up as we die in battle. No problem. They can't stop us with this kind of power. Look at verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. So that's adding into all this. And for this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Jesus is coming in. The people are coming out to see him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So even his enemies recognize the threat in Jesus of a patriotic uprising. But that was not his intent. In fact, and here's the point, Jesus mounted the donkey's colt to say otherwise. Jesus mounting the donkey's colt would not have whipped up their fervor, it would have slowed it down. It would have caused people to go, well, wait, wait a minute, what, what, what's he doing? Now that's odd. Jesus did not enter Jerusalem on a war horse or drawn on a triumphant chariot, nor did he deny their worship. Truly, he was allowing the worship to go on, but the moment he mounted that colt, something shifted. Something had to change. 
Now note this, the prophecy in verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. That is not a prophecy that the Jewish people would have laid alongside Psalm 118 as messianic. We do because we're used to it that way. Because we look back over 2,000 years and we say, oh yeah, yeah, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, fear not, your king's coming seated on a donkey's colt. It's fulfillment of prophecy, therefore messianic, therefore it's all part of the intentions and, and, and that, that's what was prepared, right? Well, yes, but they didn't know that. We only know it because we see the whole picture put together. Jewish people in the first century would not have counted Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine as a messianic prophecy of the conquering Messiah. Maybe as a prophecy of what would happen later, after he conquered, after the war was over, after the dust settled, then maybe he'll ride around Jerusalem on a donkey and that's cool, he'll be at peace, but he's coming to conquer. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine does not go alongside Psalm 118 or did not in the mind of the Jew looking for Messiah. Which is why they would have missed it, by the way. You ever think about that? You read these prophecies and go, huh, Zechariah said he'd ride on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey. What up? How, how do you not see this? Because they didn't see it. Because it wasn't part of the thinking. We gotta set aside our 2,000-year-old lens of Christian interpretation just for a minute. And think about what's really being said here, what's really going on, because it was after, note this, it was after Jesus was glorified. Let me read this to you again. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. After his resurrection, after they saw him glorified, then they looked back and went, oh, Zechariah 9, verse 9 fits but not before. So take off those glasses for just a second and consider what was actually prophesied in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Why don't you turn in your Bibles back there? Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Now the first thing you'll notice, especially if you are doing a, a prophecy to New Testament comparison, is the beginning of it changed. That in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But John chapter 12, verse 15, doesn't say, rejoice greatly, shout in triumph. It says, fear not, fear not. Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Now, it's fine that it's, that it's shortened a bit, you know, kind of brought down, but it begins, fear not, rather than beginning, rejoice greatly. John's made an alteration. You can't explain this one away by saying, well, it's because of the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Septuagint for you Bible students. You can't say that it's, based on that translation, because that translation doesn't say, fear not, in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. It also says, rejoice greatly. But John changes it. Or we probably should say, the Holy Spirit through John changes it to fear not. Why? What's going on here? 
This happens a lot in the New Testament, especially in Old Testament scriptures that are brought in for explanation. A lot of times, what we attribute to one is actually two verses put together. And, and I'll do that when I'm teaching. I'll give you two or three verses to support one idea, one point. And if I didn't give you the verse headings like we have all written out here, because you guys won't let me take that down, if I didn't give you that, you wouldn't even know necessarily that it was two or three verses I was quoting. You might go, oh, is that all one verse? And so in the New Testament, oftentimes you'll see an Old Testament quotation, but it's actually two, two, two Old Testament verses brought together for the quotation. And I think that's what's going on right here. John is perhaps drawing from two places to describe Jesus in this triumphal entry, actually this very humble entry into Jerusalem from two locations, combining two prophecies. One, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, which I'll get right back to in a second. But the other one, Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine, which reads as follows. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here is your God. Now, I think this is so cool because if this is in fact what John is doing, and there are many who think it is, he's drawing from Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine, to start the verse, fear not, daughter of Zion, Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine, and then he goes to Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, your king is coming to you uh, seated on a donkey's colt. He's taking the two to make one explanation prophetically, and that's awesome, and it fits John's gospel powerfully. Why? Because Isaiah chapter 40, verse nine says, do not fear, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And that's, remember, that's what John is saying all through the gospel. This is the gospel declaring the divinity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus as God. So it keeps with the theme of his divine nature. But again, looking at Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, this is not the triumphant ride of a conquering king. This is the humble arrival of the gentle king, the gentle king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Mark tells us it's an unbroken colt. So never before ridden, which is pretty amazing. Jesus just gets right on board and starts riding and, and the unbroken colt doesn't freak out. John doesn't mention that because that's not his point. John is drawing us into the prophecy to help us under, understand a humble arrival on a donkey in peace. And watch the rest of the prophecy. Verse 10 of Zechariah chapter nine. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. Three things real quickly to note about this gentle king prophecy. Number one, the coming of the gentle king would be associated with ceasefire, not war. Ceasefire. So if you're looking for a conquering king, Zechariah 9 is not your man. This is a king who comes in peace, with ceasefire. Micah chapter four, verse three tells us, 
they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. But we read Micah and we go, okay, yeah, but that's, that's coming kingdom stuff, right? Because we know that there wasn't peace in Jesus' first coming. We know war upon war happened after that. There were no ceasefires. In fact, Jerusalem was, was destroyed within a couple of decades three decades of Jesus' death. So, so that doesn't work. Listen, his coming the first time could have resulted in ceasefires if he had been accepted by the world. That option was on the table. Now we know, historically, that's not what happened, but that option was there. That Jesus and his first coming, had he been received, the world would have known peace. Now, God knew that wouldn't happen. But this, this Zechariah prophecy is, is of a king who comes with the intentions of a ceasefire. Let me ask you this question. Personalize it. Has Jesus coming into your life resulted in ceasefires? Apply that to your relationships. Friends, family, opponents, enemies. Do you live a life, going back to being alive in Christ like Lazarus, do you live a new life alive with ceasefires? Ephesians chapter four, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. So easy to talk about that, so hard to do just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The gentle king rode into Jerusalem with a profound picture of shalom. It was like a, a parable on the donkey, showing him this is the intent, this is what I can bring to you, this is what I have for you if you'll receive me. He's even gonna say this to the disciples in four or five days from this event. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And yet, we have troubled hearts sometimes, don't we? And we go to emotional war in our families, in our relationships, with even our friends. Has the coming of Jesus into your life resulted in ceasefire? And if not, maybe you need to talk to him about that. Maybe we need more of a work of his spirit to lead us into that kind of tenderheartedness and forgiveness and kindness. The gentle king would be associated with ceasefire. And number two, the gentle king would offer this peace, this shalom, to all, note this, nations, if you keep reading in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. He's gonna be speaking peace to the nations. This prophecy would not be connected in first century Jewish thought to the conquering king because this is peace to the goyim. Nations, it's goyim, Gentiles. It's even a word that is used among Jewish people kind of as a snub for non-Jews, goy. And if, you're, if you've never heard that before, ask a Jewish friend, hey, what does goy mean? And they'll go, <laughs> you know, you. 
And I've had a Jewish friend say it almost exactly like that. It's actually a word that we kind of use for Gentiles, but it's not really a nice way to speak of goy. And that's the word in Hebrew in the scriptures that he will speak peace to the goyim. Wow. So this king, gentle and riding on a donkey, not charging on a horse, this king bringing ceasefire, this king is offering peace to all nations? When the Jewish leadership, not all Jews, but the Jewish leadership especially would not go near a Gentile and if they brushed a Gentile in the streets had to go and, and, and have some purification. But this king, this gentle king is bringing ceasefire. He's offering peace to all the nations and is, as if to, to put a, a, a cherry on the top of the whole thing. The gentle king number three would provide the blood of the covenant. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit or cistern. Because of the blood of the covenant. So the gentle king would provide the blood of the covenant in his coming. This gentle king in the Zechariah prophecy offers ceasefire, peace to all nations, Gentile nations, and the blood of the covenant. But the king they were looking for in the first century was gonna wipe out Rome drive out the Gentiles and restore the glory of Israel to the land. It was a complete contrast. So when John says this in John chapter 12, when he quotes Zechariah 9, 9, he wasn't quoting what the people were saying. They were saying Psalm 118, but they were not saying Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. John adds that in, Matthew adds that in, and they say, but we didn't get this until after he was glorified. Do you see? We didn't understand it until later. What didn't they understand? That this was not the white horse riding conquering king of Revelation 19 and the second coming. No, this is the gentle king who rode the donkey coming into Jerusalem as a lamb for the slaughter. So they didn't understand. They, they didn't get it. It didn't make sense at the time. It wasn't until after the resurrection. Do you remember what Luke wrote about this? Luke 24, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Revelation would come after the glorification of Jesus. And by the way, that's how it works in our lives. Revelation comes after glorification. You gotta glorify Jesus first for revelation to begin to make sense. You don't understand Jesus if you're not offering him glory. If you don't see him for who he is, it's not gonna make sense to you. Christians who study and read the Bible and don't get it, it's because Jesus hasn't been glorified. But I'll tell you what, glorify Jesus in this you'll understand things you never thought you would before. The scriptures will open up where Jesus is focused on and Jesus is preached of and Jesus is glorified. And so keep going with me here. Back in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, one week out from rejection and death, what's going on here is all indications are this massive groundswell of support for Jesus because the people thought he was coming as this conquering king. But when he gets on the donkey and begins to ride, what he's actually doing there is kind of cooling their jets a bit. This doesn't look like 
Okay, this is not the Psalm 118. Well, maybe he still is, but, but it, it, it would introduce into, into the emotion of the moment a reason to settle down, not amp it up. And he could have amped it up if he had wanted it to. So back in chapter 12, this groundswell of support, Messiah King, is he Messiah King? Hey, look, he showed up. But Jesus knew better. The gospel witness of Lazarus, the gentle king, now leads us to the Gentile desire. Number three, the Gentile desire. Look at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I actually have that highlighted because I love that. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, everyone wanted to see Lazarus. These Greeks just wanted to see Jesus. We wish to see him. Can, can we see Jesus? They knew their station. They knew because of the whole relationship of Jews and Gentiles, they knew as Greeks what their station was in Jerusalem at Passover. They were not on the inside, they were on the outside. They knew that. Yesterday, we went down to Seattle so that Chris could be sworn in as a citizen of the United States. And it was really cool. And it was Chris and all the under 18, so all the kids basically who were either adopted into the U.S. or, or they had moved to the, G, the U.S. And so they were going down to express their citizenship. He was already a citizen by, by the decree and by the adoption certificate, but this was actually being sworn in. So it was a really cool moment. The guy swearing him in, he was, he was hilarious. But we sat down there, Cheryl and I and, and, and David, and we're waiting for this ceremony to start. And there was a guy from Iraq sitting right behind us and he started talking to us. I wouldn't have known he was from Iraq except that he said it. You know, I mean, he's, he's been in America for 20 years and he was talking about the oppression there and when his family got out a long time ago and then he finally got out 20 years ago and now his brother is being sworn in and all this stuff. And the guy's talking and he said, have you noticed how people are here in the, in, um, at the ceremony? He said, have you noticed that everybody's a little bit, you know, a little bit afraid? He said, that's because that's what we're used to outside of America. We're afraid. You come into a government building, and he was absolutely right. We, we had noticed that already, that everyone in the room didn't know what to do, and we're kind of looking around at each other, and no one wanted to ask anything, and you know, I don't want to upset the man, and that's, if you come out of an oppressive country, that's all you know. Well, that's what these Greeks knew. They were not part of this. They were outsiders to this, and so they're watching Jesus, they're hearing Jesus, and they just want to meet him, but they don't just ask Jesus. They instead were told, go to see Philip. Hey, Philip, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. You know, that changed everything for us in studying the Bible at the bridge when we realized we just want to see Jesus here. And starting in Genesis, we started to ask that question 18, 19 years ago now. We wish to see Jesus. And if you wish to see Jesus, guess what's gonna happen? He's gonna be glorified in your life and you will have revelation. That's how it works. We wish to see Jesus. Remember, his nature is the lens through which we understand this book. His nature. I, I said this earlier. It's not our doctrine. 
And what I mean by that is if you come to Bible study bearing your doctrine, the doctrine that you were trained in and raised in and know, and you say, this book has to fit my doctrine, you're gonna misunderstand the book. Because I guarantee you, this book is gonna contradict your doctrine from time to time, and it's gonna be very confusing. So you're gonna have to create hoops to jump through to make the book fit your doctrine. Forget about your doctrine. Think about Jesus. He is our doctrine. And let the book be your doctrine, not your traditions. And then you'll have revelation. We wish to see Jesus. And so in verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. I'm like, what is this? this is a round robin thing? They tell Philip, Philip tells Andrew, they go to Jesus. I mean, you know, why not just go to the man himself? Why this process? Philip first. Why Philip? I don't know. I, I mean, this is guesswork, but Philip is a Greek name. So maybe they learned the name of Philip and thought, hey, there's one of our guys. Well, he was from Bethsaida, so he, he was Jewish, but he had a Greek name, so maybe we could get an in with him. I don't know. But these Greeks now in Jerusalem, listen, they were also limited they had to try and get to Jesus one way or another, and it was difficult to do so because as Greeks, they were limited to the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you've studied through John, we've already mentioned Jesus did most of his teaching, we think, in the women's court. So you have the women's court, and then you have the court of the Gentiles is on the very outside, women's court, and then the men's court, inner court. So... Jesus did most of his teaching there in the women's court where the Jewish men and women all together could gather around and listen to his teaching. The court of the Gentiles was outside of that and so perhaps these Greeks just couldn't approach Jesus because he's inside. And when I say inside, understand the topography. We know this from, from Talmud and from the Mishnah. We understand that between the court of the Gentiles and the women's court, there was a three-foot wall. So not super high, you could see over it, you could hear over it, but you could not pass it because every 10 feet at intervals along this wall, signs were hung up that said death to any non-Jews who enter here. That'll make you stop. Do they mean it? I don't know, you try. <laughs> I'm right behind you. I mean, what are you gonna do? So the Gentiles are relegated to the outer court. Jesus, imagine this, in the inner court doing his teaching, the court of the women. Now, what's cool is the Gentiles could hear it. They could sit on the wall or stand next to it, perhaps, and listen. They could gather. So Jesus was intentionally picking a spot. He could be heard by anybody, but they couldn't enter. And if Jesus is in there and he's doing most of his teaching and these Greeks want to see him, ah, and then one of his guys wanders out. Hey, hey, grab him. Hey, sir, Philip, we wish to see Jesus. So that makes sense to me. Why then Philip goes to Andrew and the two of them have to approach Jesus instead of him just saying, oh yeah, he's right over here, come here. I'll get him. Hey, Jesus, these guys, why do they have to go through this process? Well, part of the reason is because of what Jesus had already said to them. He already explained to them that his first coming was to the Jew, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew chapter 10. That's our mission, guys. In fact, when he sent them out, the apostles by two, he said, don't go to any of the houses of the Gentiles. You go only into the Jewish villages, only into Jewish areas, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are the reason I came. So that's the first commission. Jesus coming to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, Paul says in Romans chapter one. So they understood this, that, well, okay, these are Greek guys, but they wanna meet Jesus. Well, we better check this because there was a barrier 
Not the three foot high barrier, but a very real barrier, the one that Paul writes about, Ephesians chapter two, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were formerly far off have been brought near, not by Philip, not by Andrew, but by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Jesus did that. That's the thing. Jesus doesn't create barriers. Jesus is not into walls to to separate people. We create those walls. Jesus tears them down. But again, this idea of the court of the Gentiles, it was was from there. (laughs) Interesting, because they're in the court of the Gentiles. Something else that happened that John doesn't mention here, Jesus had just cleared that court for the second time in his ministry. John tells us about the first time in John chapter two. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about the second time, which just happened perhaps that morning. So these Greeks must have seen him turning over money changers' tables and clearing out the court of the Gentiles and saying, this will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And they heard that and went, did he say all the nations? Wait, did you hear that? Did he say all the goyim? That's us. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So these Greek seekers They go to Philip and they grab Philip. Philip goes to Andrew and consults with him because again, Matthew 10, five and six, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus had said. But these Gentiles, these Greeks wanna see the gentle king. So John includes this, this little section, verse 20 through 27 really, He includes this little vignette. This is so significant because John, looking back, realized this was a turning point. This was a significant moment as Philip goes to Andrew and says, what do you think, Drew? Should we bring him to Jesus? And they bring him because they say, we wish to see Jesus, but John includes this, listen, because this is a crucial moment on which the clock of the ages is about to turn. They don't know that, but Jesus does. Watch this, verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now stop right there and note that. Do you remember how many times throughout this book we've heard Jesus say, my my hour has not yet come? Or John writes that about him, chapter two, verse four. My hour has not yet come, he says to Mary. Chapter seven, verse six. My time is not yet here, he says to his brothers. Chapter seven, verse 30. Chapter eight, verse 20. John writes, his hour had not yet come. But now, Jesus says, the hour has come. Here it is. Jesus recognizes an astounding reality in this moment because the Greeks are now coming to him. The Gentiles are now coming to him And Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as his sons. And Jesus recognizes now the fullness of time is about to change. Verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, so you're Phil or Andy, and you're standing there, and you said these Greeks wish to see you, and Jesus says this. Um, Lord, we just have a few goyim here who want to say hi. <laughs> what are you talking about, a grain of wheat? 
And by the way, I, I, I challenge you to try this. Take a grain of wheat and put it on your counter and see what it does. It's not gonna do anything. I'll just tell you ahead of time. It's just gonna sit there. It's not gonna do you or anybody else any good. Just set it there, but, but make you know, a little science experiment at home. Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it doesn't do anybody any good. But if it dies, it bears, right? And it becomes fruitful, Jesus says. And Philip and, and Andrew are sitting there going, that's interesting, Lord. Not sure what it means, but do you wanna say hi to these guys or not? To Jesus, their Gentile desire of these Greek seekers meant that this new era was just about to dawn. An age that would introduce, and Jesus knew it. This is all part of what Jesus knew in this last week. He knew this coming age was going to introduce unbelievable tragedy for unbelieving Israel, his own people. He had said in Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And what's ironic about that statement is he's saying, the Gentiles are gonna trash my holy city. But do you know what the times of the Gentiles is, is about? Salvation for the Gentiles who are gonna trash the holy city. That's grace. That's, that is beyond comprehension grace. That's a God who's saying, the Gentiles are gonna run roughshod over my people. I'm not okay with that, but I'm gonna give them an age that I might save them. Any of them, that is, who will receive my invitation. The offer goes out, the times of the Gentiles, but it's gonna be hard for the Jewish people until those times are fulfilled. Haggai chapter two, verse seven it says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations, the desire of all goyim, of all Gentiles shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. But before that heart-rending, horrible trampling, before one Jew was killed on an act of anti-Semitism, Jesus himself, the grain of wheat, must die. And it was his death and sacrifice that then ushers in the times of the Gentiles. Romans 1.16, again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 11.25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says we preach Christ, him crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is all so profound to me, so amazing, and yet this is all in the mind of Christ in this moment. He is recognizing the ushering in of an age that will save non-Jewish folk and recognizing it's gonna be hard for his own. But what kicks it all off will be his own death, this own grain of wheat falling. And so that's the context then of what he says next. 
where he explains the only way to move out of death and into life in this new era. Verse 25, he says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Wow. That is just about as countercultural a message as anyone has ever spoken. Here's how you do it. Hate your life. This is how you move into, into eternity. You gotta hate this world. What? That is completely opposite of everything the world tells us. Of everything that the world has to say. And by the way, note this, the word life is suke, it's soul. So it reads really like this. He who loves his soul loses it. He who hates his soul in this world will keep it to life eternal. He who loves his soul, his way of thinking, her thoughts, their intellect, their perception, their comprehension, their doctrine in this world. If you love that more than you love me, Jesus would say, you're gonna lose your soul if you don't hate that in comparison to your love for me. You're gonna lose your soul. Here's the problem. He who loves his own way of thinking, she who loves her own personal thoughts and, and paradigm of the world is glorifying themselves. Remember what I said to you before? Revelation comes after the glorification of Jesus. But if you wanna be shrouded, if you wanna be in darkness, glorify yourself. Seek for yourself. Go for yourself. Do everything that's good for yourself. We live in a culture that is so selfish. A culture that has all but rejected the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, for a different trinity, me, myself, and I. That's the trinity of the world. And if that's your trinity, if that's your glory, you're not gonna get this, and you're certainly not gonna understand him. Jesus says, no, no, he who loves his soul loses it. He who hates his soul in this world will keep it to life eternal. I don't want my thoughts, Lord. I want yours. I don't want my mentality. I want yours. I don't want to reason my way through this world. I want to know what you think. I want revelation, not reason. I want to hear you, Lord Jesus. Now, understand, Jesus is not asking you or me to walk around in some kind of pathetic self-pity. I'm going to hate my soul. There's another bad thought. Just hate me. Just hate me. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Some kind of self-loathing martyrdom. The truth is, what he's getting at here is the value of our lives in this world pales by comparison to the value of God's will for our lives on into eternity. My thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah 55, he says, nor are your ways my ways. There's a very different thing. So you can value your soul, you can love your soul, or you can listen to my spirit and let my spirit lead you. By the way, listen to verse 25 again. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. 
Right after saying, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Gotta die to bear fruit. He makes this comment. What does that say about the message of health, wealth, and prosperity that has so infiltrated the church? Can I just tell you that message does not belong in the doctrine of Jesus? He never said that. He never preached that. Christians gobbling up the the philosophies of temporary remedies. And again, it's something I talked about a little bit earlier, but I believe in healing. I believe in the spiritual gifts. I believe that God, that the spirit of God is as active today as he was in the first century. I think he wants to work in us and through us. And I think he wants to to revive our hearts. And I, I believe all of that is available, but I believe we're missing the boat if our focus is on a temporary healing that's just gonna be over. I've said this actually somewhat recently because Don and I talked about this. He heals you now, you're just gonna get sick next week. He healed me of COVID. <coughs> what is this snot I've got going on? If he were to raise you from the dead, you're gonna die again. It's temporary and there's this this thing in the church, and it just gets to me. Oh, yeah, well, we gotta have this healing ministry for what, temporary remedy? How about a kingdom priority that says no matter what shape my body's in in this world, I'm gonna serve him in the kingdom, and that is coming. And it does not deny that right now, here and now, his spirit is active and that we are functioning as citizens of that kingdom and we have the reality of Jesus now, we have the abundant life now, I get all of that. But our focus ought to not be what I can get or what I think God owes me for years of service. Our focus ought to be, Lord Jesus, use me because I don't really need this life. I want that one, and I want to be with you forever. What part of this have we failed to understand? That just as his disciples failed to understand what was going on at the first until he was glorified, we fail to understand sometimes what Jesus said. When he said, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me, which is a symbol of dying, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life or soul, same word there, will lose it. He who has lost his soul for my sake will find it. What do we misunderstand? That's Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 16, verse 24. What do we misunderstand about this? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why is that so hard to understand? We are customers of the soul instead of Jesus freaks. I always like that, Jesus freaks. That, that, that's kind of come and gone as a saying. I still think it's cool. Not old, but I also think groovy is a cool phrase too. But Jesus freaks that I am sold out to Jesus. A Jesus freak, by the way, is another way to say alive in Christ, like Lazarus. I am. I was dead. I'm alive. Pastor friend of mine said this confusing message has really, really messed up the church. We have become consumers rather than disciples. Wow, he's right on. He's right on. There's way too much consumerism. What can I get? 
And we see it in things as simple as how did the worship music affect me tonight? Well, it really didn't meet me where I was. As I've said before, I'm sorry, it wasn't for you. <laughs> well, I was there and, and yeah, they, they just didn't meet my needs. Well, okay. I didn't know your needs was the issue. And, and so we become consumers. What can God do for me as opposed to how can I be sold out for him? Like Paul. Now, Paul was the one who on the one hand said that, uh, you know, a, a crown is, is held in reserve for me and for all who have loved his appearing. I can't wait for his appearing. Paul talked about his appearing all the time and yet it was Paul who lived this way. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, and saying, here's the encouragement. Are you ready? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How does that speak of health, wealth, and prosperity? Through many tribulations. By the way, Paul said that just after he had been stoned to death outside of Lystra. Stoned to death, how could he be stoned to death? Well, I, I think he was. I think he died right there and then popped right back up, walked back into the city that had stoned him and preached that message. That's the mentality. By the way, it's a joyful one because you get there and there's nothing they can do that can hurt you. It's the word of God. It's what the word of God confirms in us. And, and I gotta tell you all something. I had the weirdest nightmare Monday morning Told Cheryl about it. I woke up, popped off my pillow and just kind of went, wow. And I, I sat there for a minute and, and I immediately started praying because I'm like, Lord, was that? Because I'm not a dreams guy. If I told you most of my dreams, you'd be like, okay, that's nuts. <laughs> and I bet a lot of your dreams are that way too. Just weird, don't make sense, kind of crazy stuff that while you're in the dream, you're like, this is normal. And then you wake up and go, okay, I don't ever want to dream that again. So I don't have, that's not typically how God speaks to me. I wonder about this one. I really do. And I wondered Monday morning as I lay there going, Lord, what was that? Did you, let me tell you the dream. So we, the Bridge Fellowship, were at a conference center. We're all there and there were several of you there. I won't name names because some of you, you know, you didn't do well. But... Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. But there were faces, and I could, even, even as I woke up and was telling Cheryl about this dream, I, there were people that I know, this couple here, and, this, you know, and Bill and Susie, they're right there. And, you know. and so I, I saw people, I just named you, didn't I? I shouldn't have done that. You did fine. <laughs> but I'm at this conference center, and we're all gathered together, and we all have our Bibles open. It was very typical of like a Sunday here at the bridge. It was great, it was very encouraging, it was fun, and I was teaching out of something, I don't know, but it was, it was scripture. I had my Bible open, I'm teaching, and I'm listening, and people are scribbling notes, and some hands are going up, what about this? And it was real interactive, and then all of a sudden, someone taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, Rick, blah, 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 we need you over here. And I'm like, oh, and some, I don't even know what it was, but some kind of immediate crisis had just happened. So I, I looked out over, over our fellowship and said, hey, talk amongst yourselves. Hang on a second, I'll be right back. And I went back behind the stage area to talk and find out and deal with whatever this was. I'm not sure who tapped me on the back. I suspect it was Eva, but I don't know. <laughs> so I, I go back there to, to deal with this. And then I come back. And it was a little detained, so I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And there's a guy standing there at the podium. And he's dressed kind of in a suit, I think. And he's, and he's teaching, and he has this book open, and I look, it's not the Bible. 
which was my first, what, what, what's going on here? And I'm looking around and it wasn't everybody, but there were a number of people that I got eye contact with and they had a glazed look in their eyes. And they had their, these books open and they're going like this. And they're totally into what he was saying. And I, I walked up and said, um, excuse me, I, I introduced myself, who, who are you? And he's, oh, I'm, I'm so-and-so. And he, and he looks over at me and he's kind of this little strange looking, but you had a suit on. And he hands me a hardback book, the book he was teaching out of that he had written. And I, I look at it and the one he handed me is kind of worn and tattered and I open it up and the first thing I noticed, this is in the dream, I, I kid you not, first thing I noticed was that there were all these glowing recommendations of what a, an amazing man this was who wrote this book. And I remember looking at it and going, that makes me uncomfortable. And then flipping to the introduction, and I read about a paragraph of it. This is all, you know, in a dream. So I can't even tell you what it said, but I read, and I got to the end of the first paragraph, and I closed the book, and I went, this is heresy. And I knew this was heresy. And I looked out as this guy was still mumbling along at the number of people within our fellowship that were sitting there with his book, soaking it up. And I said, this is heresy. I, I don't close those, but who do you think you are? And he turned and looked at me and his face was the face of a snake. I kid you not. A little tongue came out and I, I, I looked back and then he turned back toward the people and looked normal again, however normal you can look in this situation. And he took his book and tucked it under his arm and just kind of went like this and went out the door and half the people got up and followed him. And I raced out the door after him saying, don't go, this is heresy. And I woke up like this. And I went, Lord, please don't tell me that was prophetic. But it really stunned me. It was so strange. And I understood, I think, a little more of what Paul meant when he said in Acts 20, verse 29, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. What's the point? Why would I share this right now? Because the doctrine of the church is Jesus Christ himself. He is our doctrine. This is his word. This is the standard and nothing else. And you know what he said? Again, listen to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's my path. What path are you on? You gonna die to self? Follow me for the bearing of fruit for the kingdom? Is that the path you're on or are you on some other? Because later, Jesus would say that week, John 15, verse eight, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to my, be my disciples. Guess what? The only way you or I can bear much fruit is for us to die because that's the standard. That's the pattern. We have got to die to self. We have got to live to Christ and his word and put away everything else. And I'm so serious about this right now, not just because I had a weird dream, but because we are at the end of the age where deception is rampant. It's in the church and outside of the church. And the question is, are we going to be standing for Jesus when he comes? Verse 26, he said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And I think at this point, the Greeks are standing there listening. 
Right? I think they've been brought to him and, and he's saying this to them as well as to Andrew and Philly. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And brothers and sisters, we'll stop there for tonight, but from the house of Lazarus to the temple courts to the islands of the San Juans, from the first century freaks and geeks or Greeks <laughs> to the 21st century, Jesus says, follow me, and where my, for where I am, there my servant will be also. Does that sound familiar? Where I am, my servant will be also. Remember he said in John 14, verse three, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And by the way, there is health, wealth, and prosperity. There is joy untold. There he has my reward. And that's what he's invited us to. That, by the way, is the promise of the Father's honor. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So even though grains must fall and die to bear fruit, the fruit we bear is eternal, even as it was for Jesus. Last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20. Listen to how this turns on what Jesus just said. Paul wrote, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Listen, in the church, if our hope is in this life only, it is pathetic and pitiable. That is not my hope. My hope is in Christ, but not for what he can do for me in this life. My hope is in Christ for eternity, for salvation. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So the gospel witness that we see in Lazarus, that witness of the gentle king that we see in Jesus' first coming, that's not living a life followed by death. It's living a death followed by life. So you die first and then you come to life. And so the desire of these Gentiles now signal the age of grace is about to get underway to all Jews and to all Gentiles who wish to see Jesus. Lord, we wish to see Jesus. And that's why we're here and that's what our hearts are beating on, to see Jesus in the scriptures, to see Jesus in our lives to be grains of wheat like our Lord before us, Lord Jesus, to die if we have to. And even that, I'm not playing martyr. I've had a relatively easy life. I, I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, Lord. But am I willing to? And am I willing to put you first above all other exploits or, or, or activities in my life? And I pray Lord Jesus, for your church. I pray for your church that we would be alive in Christ, that we would live for you and not for ourselves any longer, that we wouldn't look for how we could find blessing in this life. We thank you, Lord, that the blessings come and the undeserved blessings are, are daily with you. But our focus, Lord, may it be you. May it be the truth. And may we be accounted, be counted, Lord, among the faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.